Well, then, with a view to the help of God and his guidance, let's uh, turn to the book of Exodus again. And uh, chapter 20, which, of course, uh, contains the Ten Commandments, as we read them. And the chapter begins by telling us that God spoke all these words, which as we'll see is a very significant statement, that God spoke all these words. Now, last uh, Lord's Day, we saw at last Israel arriving at Mount Sinai, where they were to stay for over a year on their way to the Promised Land. And God, of course, had meant them to stop at this mountain all along. And the reason for that is that he had two things to give them. And you'll remember what they were. First of all, he had a law for them to live by. And at the heart of that law are just these Ten Commandments. And the second thing that he had to give them was a law to worship by. And at the heart of that was to be a building known as the Tabernacle, which was to be a marvellous picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So a law to live by and a law to worship by. And that law actually takes you through the rest of the book of Exodus, the whole of the book of Leviticus, and part of the book of Numbers. And it's only halfway through the book of Numbers that you see Israel again picking up their tents and resuming their journey to the Promised Land. In fact, the whole law is given a second time. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, second law. Uh, it's given again by Moses just before he dies to remind them of the importance of keeping it. So really, there's a long pause at Mount Sinai where they receive this law to live by and the law to worship by. Now, our focus, first of all, will be on the law that they live by. And at the heart of that is the Ten Commandments. Now, for, for some time, actually, I've been hesitant as to whether to look at the Ten Commandments with you because I understand that uh, the previous minister here, Mr. McCollum, took, took you through uh, the Ten Commandments, maybe not that long ago, but still, I just feel it would leave a terrible hole if we weren't to consider the Ten Commandments, and in any case, there are people here who were not here then, so uh, let's come to the Ten Commandments and ask for God's blessing as we go through them. But we need to begin, of course, by taking an overview of them. And the first thing that we notice in connection with the Ten Commandments is that they stand apart from the rest of the law that God gives. Now, God's going to give a fairly extensive law. Some of these are what's usually referred to as judicial laws because they're for the nation. They're detailed laws about the government of the nation. Other laws are called ceremonial laws because they're to do with worship and how to approach God. But these Ten Commandments stand apart. They stand apart for profound theological reasons, but they stand apart right from the beginning. And we see them standing apart in three ways. First of all, they stand apart in the way that they are actually delivered. They are not delivered in the same way as the rest of God's commandments. So that sets them apart. The second thing that sets them apart is the way that they're recorded. The other laws are recorded as you would expect them to be recorded. Uh, written, kept in a book. These are recorded differently. And third, they are deposited in a very unique way. They're not kept with the rest of the laws. They are kept in a place apart. So the way they're delivered the way they're recorded and the way they're deposited. And all these things have something 
to say to us. And we need to remember, of course, that in all these things, God is not just teaching Israel, he's teaching us. In connection with that, remember what I said last week, it's the church of God that's being dealt with here. And everything that's being said to them or done with them is for our benefit as well as for theirs. That will become more clear as we look at what happens here. Let's look first at the way in which the commandments are delivered. The Ten Commandments, that is. Ten, by the way, is a number for perfection. Not just completeness, that's seven, but ten is perfection. It is the perfect law of God. These Ten Commandments remind us how to worship God perfectly with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and how to worship our neighbour as ourselves. So the law of God is perfect and of course it is exceeding broad and it is exceeding deep too. Trying to keep them externally won't cut it. Uh, They must be kept from the heart in love through the Lord Jesus Christ but that's in a way going ahead of ourselves. So these ten commandments are first of all delivered in a special way and by that I mean that they are actually spoken audibly by God himself. We're told that God spoke all these words in verse 1. Now just in case you think that's a a way of saying that he actually just simply gave them, in verse 18, if you go down, it becomes very plain that the Bible means that quite literally. All the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, and we'll be able to hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Not just what was said, but how it was said so impressed their souls that they felt they could not bear to hear it because they had heard it not through Moses the mediator but they heard these words direct from God Moses you speak but let not God (coughs) say any more to us lest we die and that's actually confirmed in the New Testament where the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12. Now we looked at this at the prayer meeting and of course you're all welcome to the prayer meeting too. Uh, At the prayer meeting we saw how Israel came to this mountain and were told that when they heard the voice of words, now if you want to look this up later it is Hebrews 12 and it's verse 19, they heard the voice of words so that When they heard it, they begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. And just uh, one more example of it, just to confirm it, God tells us through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, Take heed, he says, you saw no forum when the Lord spoke to you at all. You didn't see an image. You didn't see any likeness of God himself. That, of course, will become important when it comes to worship and the role of images and so on in the second commandment. You saw no form when the Lord spoke to you. In other words, you heard voice, but you didn't see any form. And again, later in the same chapter, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you did and live out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you on earth he showed you fire and you heard his words from the midst of the fire and the same chapter actually that's Deuteronomy 5 tells us that once God spoke these ten commandments he added no more 
didn't say anything else. That, that reminds you that the rest of the law that you have in uh, the latter part of Exodus, the worship laws in Leviticus and all these, God gave them to Moses uh, while Moses was 40 days and 40 nights on this mountain in extraordinary fellowship with God. That's where he gave all these laws. But the ten he spoke. Now certainly it's true that when Moses was on the mountain top for these 40 days and 40 nights, God actually gave him the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. That's true. But they were only written after he had spoken them himself. So that's the first thing we notice, that God spoke the Ten Commandments. That seems right away to add a kind of awe to them, a special kind of transcendence and profundity, a special kind of Something that demands a special reverence and respect from ourselves. God spoke the ten words. And in fact, it's as Deuteronomy tells us, it makes, us a, makes that a unique occasion. At no point before, and I think I'm right in saying at no point since, did God speak to the whole church audibly in that kind of way. That draws our attention very much to the Ten Commandments. So they're set apart by the way they're recorded, by the way they're delivered. But secondly, they're set apart by the way in which they're recorded. Two things to notice about that. First of all, they were written with God's finger. They were written with God's finger. We're told that they were cut by God into stone tablets. Now Moses, you remember, in anger, broke the original Ten Commandments when he came down and saw them dancing around the golden calf. There's so much to learn from that. So God wrote them again, wrote them with his own finger on the top of the mountain. Now, you know as well as I do that God doesn't have fingers, no more than he has a voice. Uh, he can adopt a voice when he needs to, and he can speak uh, through fingers and write through fingers when he wants to. And that's the way that God chose to write the Ten Commandments. Now, the finger of God always represents the authority of God in the Scripture. Uh, you may remember when Christ was uh, casting out evil spirits, the um, Pharisees, of course, well, they didn't like the fact that he could do it, so they had to find some way of explaining it. And he said, well, what you are doing, he says, you're doing by the power of evil. It is a demonic power. It is a satanic power that you are using when you are casting demons out of people. And, of course, the Lord said to him, well, um, is Satan divided? You know, can you see, if I, by the power of Satan and casting out Satan, how can Satan's kingdom stand? How can he be doing the destructive work that he's doing if his kingdom is that disorganized and that chaotic? Rather, Christ says, if I by the finger of God am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. I'm sure he's probably referring to the fact that he was using his finger to point uh, in the direction of the evil spirits when he was casting them out of people. But the finger represents the authority of God. It is by the finger, by the authority, by the power of God that I cast out these evil spirits. You see the same finger appearing in Daniel chapter 5 on the uh, solemn night in which the empire of Babylon fell, fell to the Persians. The last king of Babylon was King Belshazzar. And uh, you'll remember how he created a, a feast for government officials, thousands of them, uh, gathered in the palace. And uh, when the drunkenness and the debauchery began, because one sin always leads to another, he asked for the holy vessels that they had taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. He asked for them to be brought in as part of the entertainment. What's better than to drink out of these precious vessels that had come from the temple? Now his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had at least, even though he had raided the temple and brought the precious uh, uh, goods, the vessels and the cups and so on, 
Uh, although he had brought them into captivity, there was a measure of respect. He, he had placed them in a place where people would not go near them. But, of course, his son was worse than that. <coughs> and uh, he showed contempt for the things of God. And the moment they began to slip into sacrilege, the moment their sin moved into blasphemy and sacrilege, God intervened. The fingers of a man's hand, well, that's how they appeared. But can we not say that they were the finger of God? The finger of God, of course, appeared on the plastered wall. Many, many, tekel ufarsen, numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom is numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance of my justice and righteousness. Weighed in the balance of my holy law and ufarsen. You have been found wanting and your kingdom is divided. The finger of God. The authority of God. The law of God. The judgment of God. It is that finger that writes and cuts these words into the stone. Now, I don't think we're to think of it as that kind of appearance that Daniel saw. Sorry, that Belshazzar saw. Rather, you'll remember in Exodus 34, this is getting ahead of ourselves, but when God came to give the tablets to Moses, he clearly appeared in a human form. Uh, Moses asked God to see his glory and God passed him by. And it's while he was on the mount in that human form, can we not say a pre-incarnate? appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ that he cut these commandments, he engraved them into stone by his own finger. So they are engraved or they're recorded by God's finger. And the second thing of course to notice in connection with the way that they're recorded is that they were recorded on two tablets of stone on both sides of each tablet. Now, it's tempting to think that these are two copies of the one law. The reason it's tempting to think like that is because very often when uh, covenants were made between two parties, there would be two copies of the covenant. A copy kept by the overlord, the suzerain, the one who has been in charge of the covenant, and the other copy kept by those who were to keep the covenant. There seems to be a wonderful kind of um, parallel there between that and this. But at the same time, we can't deny the fact that both these tablets end up being stored in the same place, inside the Ark of the Covenant. So that's really telling us that we don't have two copies Rather, we have two tablets simply containing the Ten Commandments. Surely we could say that the first tablet contains four, the first four, and the second tablet contains the second six. The first four have to do with God, our relationship to him. No other gods before him, worship him properly, Never treat his name lightly with the reverence. Always respect his holy Sabbath day. And then you have, and these of course sum up how we love God. How do you love God? You love him like that. Of course these are from the heart. <laughs> that was one of the mistakes the Pharisees made. You, you can't fulfill these four commandments in your own strength and by your own effort. But from the heart. And from the heart then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And how do you know someone who does? Well, because in the name of Christ and for Christ's sake, they try to keep these commandments. The other six tell us how to love our neighbour as ourselves. <laughs> respecting family and authority, respecting life, respecting sexual purity both before and after marriage, respecting property and respecting truth. So on these two tablets, we have the whole 
of the law in connection with serving God, loving God, and loving one another. So these Ten Commandments, they stand apart in the way in which they're delivered, God speaks them audibly, and the way in which they're recorded, because God himself inscripturates them in stone with his own finger. But there's a third way in which they stand apart too. They stand apart in the way in which they're deposited. The rest of the laws are being kept in what's called a book. Uh, the Old Testament refers to it. Moses sometimes says to Joshua, write this in the book. That's, that's the Bible as it grows and as it expands. The Ten Commandments are not just written in the book, but when God writes them on stone, they are deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, <clears throat> most of you will know what the Ark of the Covenant is. Some of you may not. The fact is that it hasn't been built yet. It will be very, very shortly because one of the things that God does in the 40 days and 40 nights when Moses is with God in the mountain, one of the things that God does is give him precise details for the building of a place of worship, a tabernacle, which will gloriously reflect God's relationship with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a wonderful picture of that, a wonderful picture of our Lord and Saviour. But the main item inside that tabernacle would be the Ark of the Covenant once it was made. Just a small chest overlaid with gold. On top of it, a slab of gold that was called a mercy seat. It is actually to be conceived of as a sitting place or a dwelling place. The fact of the matter is that this Ark constitutes a kind of earthly throne because what's going to happen is that the presence of God that they've seen now and again in the form of a cloud is going to be localised on the top of this ark. And they know every time the tabernacle is set up, although they can't see it, they know that the presence of God is in there. It's inside the cubic structure at the heart of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies. Ten by ten cubits. There again you have your perfection place of darkness except for this marvellous light that illuminated it which was the presence of God. No one could go into that place on pain of death except the high priest once a year. God dwelt there. You'll remember that on either side of the ark there were these angelic figures called the cherubim. Everything is replicating God's throne in heaven where he's surrounded by cherubim. Uh, where he dwells in light. That is brought before us here in the Holy of Holies. It's illuminated that place by his own presence, by his own glory, and he is surrounded by these angelic figures. Now, it's inside that little box, and it's not a big box at all. It's some, somewhere like uh, around three feet by two, or maybe even two and a half by one and a half. It's inside that box that these two tablets are placed on which God dwells. God sits on his throne of justice and righteousness and the commandments are placed there. The ten commandments are placed there. Now, of course, the real question in connection with all that is why? That's always the question. Why? What, what things are Israel being taught here? And of course, as I said earlier, what are we being taught as well? Well, let's work backwards. Let's start with the depositing of the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. Let's start there. Why are they put there? What's that telling us? Well, the fact that they're part of the throne on which God sits is telling us two things. First, it's telling us that the Ten Commandments are not primarily about our holiness, but about God's holiness. He dwells on this throne. 
He sits in the tabernacle amongst the cherubim on a throne that is established upon his own holiness. And the Ten Commandments testify to him. To him first. Of course they testify to us too. But that's not the point right now. They testify to him. That's why when you look at the Ten Commandments, you don't just see yourself. Sad to say we do. But we see God. And because we see God, we see ourselves. That's why the Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments themselves. They're not arbitrary. Put it another way. I speak with respect. God couldn't have given us another Ten Commandments. It's not as though there were other options that God could give us. Having created us as rational, spiritual men and women, it's not as though God could give us another set of ten, an alternative set of ten. Or, if you like to put it that way, neither could he give us ten commandments that were the negation of these. He couldn't give us ten commandments that said, thou shalt commit adultery because that's what I want you to do. Or you shall kill because that's how I want you to, to be, killing those that you don't like and disapprove of. He couldn't give his commandment that said, you must steal. Why not? Why not? Because these are a reflection of who he is. Not, not just a, a requirement on us as to what we should be like, but they are a reflection of what he is like. They reveal, first of all, his holiness. That's why the people feared when they were given. Not just what was given. They knew themselves that this was high. But the way God gave them to, by thundering his own voice, was effectively saying to them, Look, I require you to be holy because... I am holy. Is that not the famous text we have in the book of Leviticus? Be ye holy, for I am holy. And the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's holiness to you, to me, as rational, spiritual men and women. This is what God calls us to be, because this is what God is like himself. Pure. He is holy. And as well as expressing his holiness, depositing them in the Ark of the Covenant reminds us that the Ten Commandments form the basis of God's relationship with us. The whole point of God's throne coming onto the earth was effectively to say, look, there's a way back into my fellowship. You'll remember originally that the Garden of Eden was shut after sin. It was closed. There's a sword of justice guarding the way into God's presence. But lo and behold, God comes back on the earth. And he comes back on the earth in a tabernacle. And he comes back on the earth on a throne that is at the heart of a dwelling place. A place of fellowship. And a place of meeting. And by the Ten Commandments being there, God is not just saying, I am holy, but my relationship with you must be established on holiness. You must, every time you come to me, you must recognize that holiness, and you must respect it. You must always respect it. And fellowship with God always respects God's holiness. Like I quoted a minute ago, you be holy because I am holy. Now we thank God that the, this throne, the ark, had a slab on top of it. I referred to it earlier. It was called the mercy seat. It was a slab of gold. And it's got a wonderful name, mercy seat. Because God doesn't just sit on law. He sits on mercy. And the mercy seat, this is going ahead of ourselves, but there's a way in which I need to say it. The mercy seat only becomes a mercy seat when the blood was sprinkled on it. When the animal was killed, once a year, the blood was taken in and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. That's when it becomes a mercy seat. We thank God for that. 
because there is a blood of sprinkling that always speaks there. And every time we come near to God, we come near conscious of that blood. It's there in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But so is his law. And we're never to think we can claim the blood if we're not respecting his holiness. And the Bible just constantly warns us against doing that. If we claim to have fellowship with God while despising the fact that God is holy, then our claim to that kind of fellowship is simply a lie. I'm sure some of you in your minds will already be going, maybe to the text that I'm going to, but John makes it very plain in the first letter where he's warning against this kind of thing. He says, he's speaking of fellowship here. Fellowship's a wonderful thing, to have fellowship with this holy God and with his son, Jesus Christ. He says, we declare to you that God is light. That's, well, knowledge, yes, but supremely holiness. God is light, he's holy, and in him is no darkness at all. Now that's difficult for us to draw near to that kind of God. <coughs> and we're so full of darkness. And then he seems to make it harder still. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we're lying, he says, and not practicing the truth. Our claim to fellowship is empty. But he says, if we walk in light as he is in light, seems so difficult too but he says we do have fellowship how? because the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin and if we're aware in our walking in this light of, of God's law and his holiness if we're aware of the darkness in us yet If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's setting a bar high. In fact, does he not say in chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you, he says, so that you would not sin. Live in the light as God is in the light. Respect his holiness and purity. But if you sin, he says, You have an advocate with the Father. Confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And all the people of God know that tension in their lives. Loving the law, living the law with the help of the Holy Spirit but falling short of the law and casting themselves upon God for his mercy. But that law declares the basis of our fellowship. I am in the light and you must walk in the light. Um, That's God's unchanging holiness. That takes us back to the second thing. That's the depositing of the ark in God's throne. Sorry, the, the depositing of the commandments in God's throne. That's the basis of our fellowship. Walking in holiness with him. But you'll remember that the commandments were engraved in stone. Now that immediately leads us to the idea of something permanent. Not written on the earth. The Bible refers to some things written in the earth. But written in stone. I don't know if you remember when Job was in his darkest hour in chapter 19 of the book. And he suddenly has a a vision of God as his redeemer. And before he utters the words, the immortal words, I know that my redeemer lives. And these are immortal words. Before he utters them, he says, oh, that my words were written, that they were engraved with lead in a rock forever. The practice that he's referring to there is just the practice of cutting into rock, filling it with molten lead, so that the lead just stands out in a permanent way forever. Oh, that my words, he says, were engraved like that. And of course, the words that he wanted engraved were those, I know that my Redeemer liveth. 
You see me with nothing. You see me diseased from the crown of my head to the sole of my foot. I've lost all my wealth. I've lost all my family. But I know that my Redeemer liveth. Of course, better than being engraved in rock. <laughs> that found its place into the book. And we still read these immortal words. But that's the kind of idea that we have here. These commandments are permanent. Permanent. In fact, you can stretch that back as well as forward. They've always been around. They were around from the beginning. And they're still around. You see them working in Genesis. Even Adam is keeping a Sabbath. Noah is keeping a Sabbath. That's your fourth commandment. Cain murders Abel. That's a breach of the sixth commandment. Jacob has idols. In, well, some of his family members have idols. That's a breach of commandments one and two. Lot, of course, coveted Sodom. That's commandment number ten. Joseph resists adultery. He does not. He, res he respects the seventh commandment. And so it goes on. These Ten Commandments are actually in place already. Now, I know that raises the question in your mind. Uh, why are they given again? Well, just hold on a moment. But the fact of the matter is that they've always been around. And you'll notice in the New Testament that Christ reinforces them. Some people have ideas. Very often you find it in certain Baptist circles that the law, the Ten Commandments are abrogated. And you've got the law of love instead. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, how does that how does that work uh, so if you're to love your neighbour how do you show that love well I would say by respecting his property by respecting their uh, sexual purity and God given rights by telling them the truth and so on that's what Paul means when he says love is the fulfilment of law he doesn't mean oh we love instead of law he says that loving is living with this this is how you love and this is how you love God. Christ reinforces that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he delivers them all again. And they seem to go deeper than they ever did. Six times he confronts the Pharisees in connection with the Sabbath, and he always establishes it. He never abrogates it. These are permanent. And in fact, I want you to notice that as well as being permanent, these ten, ten commandments are universal as well. Don't, don't think they were just given to Israel. God is judging the whole world on the basis of these Ten Commandments. Um, you see that in the Old Testament. Uh, God judges individuals and nations for, for sins that they should know they were committing. For example, when Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, tries to take uh, Sarah off Abraham as his own wife, God judges him for that. Um, God judges Nineveh for their sins. Even way back in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, deteriorating with their pleasure-orientated lifestyle, wealth-orientated lifestyle, which eventually burst out in sexual decadence, God judges that city, these cities, the five cities of the plague. You couldn't turn around and say, oh, but they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They did know the Ten Commandments. They obviously did. And it's on that basis that God is judging them. How did they know the Ten Commandments? Well, Paul tells us in the New Testament that they are written on our hearts. Now, there may be some details that are not. For example, we may know inside that we're to keep a special part of the week holy to God. Only a special revelation tells us which day that is to be. You'll notice that when God says to Israel, honour your father and your mother, that your days may belong in the land which your Lord your God has given you. That has a reference to the promised land. So the precise form in which they're given may be different, but their essence is always the same. We don't come into this world, like John Locke said, a blank slate, and we learn then everything we learn. We come into this world like a computer that's pre-programmed. There's hardware. It's not just a matter of software. There's hardware. There's something inside here. It's an Adam from the start. You think of Adam, and if I was to, if I was to speak to you at Adam and if, about Adam, and if I was to ask you, 
What law did Adam have? You would say, well, God told him that he could eat of these trees, but there was another tree of which he couldn't eat. Well, yes, that was a commandment, and it was an important commandment, but that wasn't all Adam's law. Adam, as he came from God, knew in his heart that God was real, that no one should replace God in his heart, in his life, and in his affections, that he was to worship him properly. God told him especially that that would be so on a Sabbath day. Adam would teach his children to honour himself as father and mother, and family life to be run like that. Adam knew he was to respect life, not just his wife, but his children and their children's children, and so on and so on. All that was written in Adam's heart. The special command not to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was just a, a kind of way of saying, are you going to be obedient to me or not? And of course, by taking it, essentially they said, not. Tragically. Tragically for him and tragically for you and for me. So, these laws have always been around because they are written in our hearts. And that reminds us of something else too. It reminds us that you are going to be judged according to this law. So am I. I tried to highlight that last week actually by saying to you that all these commandments are actually you singular. That, of course, comes through in the King James Version more clearly because it preserves the old pronoun thou, which has fallen out of use. Thou shalt not. Thou is you singular. And the you here is you singular. You. Now, so that's God's way of saying to Israel, I'm speaking to you individually. You know, God is not speaking to them collectively. He is in one way, but he's pointing at them, as it were, and saying, you And you today here are to take this absolutely personally to yourself. God is saying, I'm telling you that you must have no other gods before me. I am telling you that you must worship me as I tell you to worship. I'm telling you to keep a Sabbath day. And I'm telling you to honour your father and mother and so on. It's all so personal. And that, of course, reminds us that we are one day to give account for this law. It's written in all our hearts. We have a conscience. Paul says that's how the Gentiles have a a conscience because the law of God is actually written there. They may try and smudge the writing. They may try and bury it under lots of uh, cultural habits and other philosophies, but the law of God is written in there. And one day it'll come out and judge you. If it doesn't matter who you are today, the Ten Commandments will come up before you on the Day of Judgment. And if you think you're keeping them today, you'll know then that you are not. Absolutely you are not. If you have any God-given honesty in your own heart today, you'll know too that as you read these things, you'll, you'll say to yourself, Oh dear, Woe is me. Is that what God expects? Is that the basis on which I can know God and serve him and be saved? You'll be saying, oh dear, that's not that's not me. That's the law that will judge you. Can you say that you've perfectly kept these Ten Commandments? Can you? If you've heard the gospel, you'll be judged for something else. You'll not only be judged on the basis of the law written in your heart, but the gospel you are privileged to hear. In other words, God said, you know the Ten Commandments. I showed you that you don't keep them, but I showed you someone who did. I sent my own son into the world to live them out perfectly for your sake and to take the curse of everyone who's broken them providing they put their trust in him and you rejected that. So I judge you twofold. I judge you for the law you broke and I judge you for your failure to take the remedy. 
That's why, friends, when people say what they often say, you often hear this, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? My stock response to that is, what about people who have? The people who have never heard the gospel won't be judged on the basis of the gospel. Of course they won't, because they haven't heard it. They'll be judged on the basis of the law of God which was written in their heart. But sad to say, who's lived up to that? If anyone knows that they haven't, and they cry to God for help, believe you me, God will find them with the gospel. Believe you me, God will find them with the gospel. But if anyone has served the gospel and still rejected, that's the person I worry about the most. Is that you? Is that you? Let me just close with this, and I'm conscious again that I've gone on for a long time. These are commandments are permanent, they're universal, and they're personal. But just one more thing, very briefly. Why then are they given right now in this way? Well, the answer to that is Israel is just beginning her existence as a nation. And God wants her to be governed righteously and properly. And as a nation, he wants all the other nations of the earth to look at her and say, well, look at these laws. The Ten Commandments and the other laws that flow from them. Is there another nation like that? Revealing God's holiness. And in such a way as to make us say, what have they got that we haven't got? The Ten Commandments should still be the first page in our statute book. Every single nation that is serious about serving God should have on the first page the Ten Commandments. A reminder that every single law and statute must flow from them. That, by the way, reminds you where we have fallen from, because that's where we used to be, and where we have fallen to. Just watch the coronation service and uh, compare it with... You'll, you'll see this uh, 17th century coming through in it all the time, and you'll see the 21st century trying to negate it at every single turn. Just watch it. You'll see both things. But here it is given at the beginning. This will exalt the nation. That's why too, when God is bringing us to himself, before he brings us to Christ, he has his own way of bringing us to Mount Sinai. The holiness of God. Don't be afraid to stop there and to look and to linger. It's by... It's by understanding that holiness of God that we begin to really appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy seat and the blood of sprinkling. Next Sabbath morning, God willing, I'll come back to this. We'll move on to something else tonight. Let's call on the name of God. <coughs> o Lord, our God, bless our meditation upon your great and glorious truth. Remind us that we have a need of our sins being covered. We have a need of Christ. And once we have seen uh, your holiness, oh, how we need a covering for our sin. And we are thankful today if we stand under the cover of that blood because it does indeed cleanse us from all sin. Bless to us the gospel. In the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. And we'll close by <coughs> singing in Psalm 19. Verse 7. Psalm 19 at verse 7, which reminds us that God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin that lies. You'll remember that God's law includes the law of restoration and worship too. God's testimony is most true and it makes the simple wise. The statutes of the Lord are right, 
and do rejoice the heart. The Lord's command is pure and of light to the eyes in part. Out of Christ the law crushes us, but in Christ suddenly it becomes so attractive to the heart. Verses 7 to 10 to God's praise. We stand to sing. <coughs> God's law is perfect and converts the soul in sin that lies.